Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Richard! Richard! Oh, are we on? Welcome to the Richard Serrett Show on News Talk Saga 960 AM. Hey, welcome to Radio Free Canada. News, notes, and opinions from the underground for Monday, Jan 10th, 2022. You may have noticed that information that got a lot of people kicked off social media is now being said out loud by the bingo callers on mainstream news. Even the, uh, the head of the CDC. Things like the COVID-19 vaccine causing changes to a woman's menstrual cycle. All the news reports write changes to a person's menstrual cycle. So I fixed it for them. What they really mean is changes to a woman's menstrual cycle. Oh, that's so controversial. Women have been talking about this for a year, maybe. Women who've taken the vaccine noticing changes. They're concerned about the changes to their menstrual cycle. And they were kicked off social media and they were called hysterical conspiracy theorists. Now, suddenly the studies are coming out and saying, yes, it's true. They're saying the change is very small, but at least they're admitting it. For about two years, those of us who've been paying attention. Knew the number of deaths attributed to COVID were grossly exaggerated. Italy's version of the CDC reported very, very early on in the pandemic that well over 90% of people in Italy who died with COVID had numerous, numerous serious comorbidities. And the vast majority of deaths in Italy were people who died with COVID, not from COVID. That's Italy's CDC. Nobody here reported it at the time. They came out with another statement several months ago. Same thing. Crickets over here. Yesterday, making the rounds on the Sunday chat shows in the U.S. that nobody watches. Rochelle Walensky, head of the CDC. Admitted to this. Have a listen. The overwhelming number of deaths, over 75%, occurred in people who had at least four comorbidities. So really, these are people who were unwell to begin with. 
the overwhelming number of deaths, over 75%, occurred in people who had at least four comorbidities. So really these are people who were unwell to begin with. The overwhelming number of deaths, over 75%, occurred in people who had at least four comorbidities. So really these are people who were unwell to begin with. Yeah, I repeated it three times for effect. You get the idea. 75%. This is not news to those of us who've been paying attention. We've been saying this for years. Why isn't that front page news? Why is it buried? She announces it on Sunday on the TV chat shows that nobody watches. Or how about this news story from England's Telegraph newspaper? Headline, the common cold might have given Britain's protection from COVID before pandemic began. Oh, you mean things like natural immunity and protection from T-cells? Dr. Cower, right here in Ontario, right here in Peel region, has been tweeting this for two years. She's been talking about this until she's blue in the face for two years. We know this. Why now? Why now? The story from The Telegraph also was reported in The Standard in the UK. And not a word here in Kanakistan, of course. Here's the article. Some people who develop high levels of natural immunity after having a common cold are less likely to catch COVID, London researchers suggested today. They said the study was the first evidence of the ability of T-cells, really the first evidence. White blood cells that can kill or respond to other cells infected with the virus to protect against COVID. This could act as a blueprint for a second generation universal vaccination effective against all variants, including Omicron. The researchers said. Today's research led by Imperial College London shows how the presence of T-cells that have been induced by a coronavirus, coronavirus cold can reduce the, the risk of becoming infected with COVID when exposed to the virus. Duh. Last week. See, this is all coming out now. Why? Why? Ask yourself why. Last week, the, the horrible governor of New York almost makes us miss Cuomo. Well... That's going too far. Ontario's chief medical officer, Dr. Kieran Moore, and Brampton Mayor Patrick Brown, suddenly all cluing in two years too late, mind, mind you. Finally arriving at the dance long after the band packed up and went home, but finally admitting that COVID hospitalization numbers are not what they appear to be. I'll use the word gamed. The numbers are gamed. There's hospitalizations from COVID and there's hospitalized with COVID. We've known about this for two years. You think people are stupid? All this is coming out now. Coincidence? Could it have something to do with this? On Thursday, a federal judge in Texas ordered the Food and Drug Administration to make public the data it relied on to license Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine, imposing a dramatically accelerated schedule that should result in the release of all information within about eight months. Eight months! Initially, that was supposed to be released in dribs and drabs over 75 years. 
So now a federal judge has said, no, you're going to release it not in 75 years, all of it in 75 years. You're going to release it all within the next eight months. That's roughly 75 years, four months faster than the FDA said it could take to complete a Freedom of Information Act request by a group of doctors and scientists. They were seeking an estimated 450,000 pages of material about the vaccine. The court concludes that this FOIA request is of paramount public importance, wrote U.S. District Judge Mark Pittman in Fort Worth, who was incidentally appointed to the bench by former President Donald Trump back in 2019. Could this have something to do with why all these COVID idiots are falling all over themselves to admit what many of us have known for two years? Because the TV doctors and the politicians and the bureaucrats They know this narrative is going to be destroyed now that all of the Pfizer data is coming out, not in 75 years when they're all dead and gone, when we're all dead and gone. It's coming out now. It's coming out now. The New York Times, the Marxist New York Times even, acknowledging that Omicron is a bad cold. It's unraveling, folks. It's unraveling. So look for another variant to rear its head. The TV doctors and the public health bureaucrats desperately need a new variant. It should be along any day now. All right, coming up on today's juggernaut of an audio transmission. It's not all COVID, folks. It's not all COVID all the time. This is an interesting story. It's being it's a great story. It's being referred to as perhaps the biggest unsolved mystery in Canadian history. How's that for a headline? The disappearance of a U.S. military plane carrying 44 passengers over the Yukon. More than 70 years ago, vanishes without a trace, despite numerous searches. Nothing found. I'll speak with a filmmaker about his new documentary on the subject called Sky Master Down. Then we'll get to the COVID. So our fear-mongering federal minister of health wants us to know that mandatory vaccination measures are inevitable and they're on their way. And the premiers are talking about it. It's just a matter of time. Really? Tom Korski from Black Locks Reporter will be here to discuss In hour two, Max Bernier, leader of the People's Party, will also respond to the health minister's scary warning. And Max will also discuss former CBC radio and TV producer turned whistleblower Tara Henley, uh, her article in the National Post. She quit the CBC in disgust over, among other things, the corpse's rabid obsession with race. And uh, Max will also talk about um, that huge protest in Montreal this past weekend against the curfew and the max uh, the vaccine mandates. He was there. But first, can a new film help solve Canada's 70-year mystery of a vanished U.S. plane? That conversation starts in three minutes. The Richard Serrett Show off and running for Monday, Jan 10th, 2022. Keep your stick on the ice. We're back as The Richard Serrett Show continues on News Talk, Saga 960 AM. 
70 years ago, 72 years ago. Jan 26, 1950, a uh, Douglas C-54 Skymaster plane, U.S. military military transport plane bound for Montana, carrying 44 crew and passengers from uh, Anchorage, Alaska, disappeared without a trace over the Yukon. And uh, this mystery and tragedy is uh, investigated in a, a new documentary film called Sky Master Down. It premieres on the documentary channel this coming Sunday, Jan 16th at 9 p.m. Eastern. The filmmaker is Andrew Gregg. He joins us now. Andrew, welcome. How are you? Happy New Year. Good. I'm good. Thank you very much for having me on. Uh, so just give us a thumbnail sketch about the, uh, the, the Sky Master plane's last journey. What do we know? It was leaving from Elmendorf Air Force Base in Anchorage, uh, flying south to Great Falls, Montana, with uh, 44 people on board, including crew. Uh, presumably, when it got to Great Falls, everybody would disperse. Um, they were all serving in Alaska, and a lot of them were on their way home for leave. Um, the, there was a one woman on board who was pregnant and traveling with her two-year-old. She was going to see an obstetrician in Colorado, but otherwise, everybody else on board was a military man. And um, they were there was this is pre radar. So the whole flight down, they were checking into different uh, radio outposts that were set up every 100 miles along along the route. And uh, they checked in at the first one in the Yukon, a remote place called Snag. And they said, there's a little bit of ice on our wings, but nothing to worry about. Everything is fine. And after that, nobody ever heard from them again. Um, and in the last 72 years, not even a rivet has been found from that airplane. Uh, what was the weather like? Do we know? It was January 26. It was cold, uh, but not brutally cold. Um, there was an adequate ceiling. Uh, this plane couldn't fly higher than 10,000 feet because it wasn't pressurized. So it uh, and it had people on board. So it had to stick to uh, that that ceiling. Uh, but otherwise, um, everything was fine. Um, in the subsequent weeks, when the search happened for the plane, uh, it got brutally cold, so cold that a lot of the search planes engines couldn't even start. Well, talk to me about the scope of the uh, the recovery, the search and recovery mission. The, the search and recovery was jointly done between the Canadian and American armed forces. Um, at the same time that the Skymaster went missing, there were um, previously planned war games going on in the Yukon um, between the U.S. and Canada. So there are already thousands of soldiers and a lot of equipment in the territory. But that actually, rather than help the search, hindered it because um, as they were parachuting or letting off flares, people would phone into the search headquarters and say, I saw it. I know where it is. And and so there was a lot of wild goose chases on the search. Um, they looked for three weeks. It was the largest uh, military search and rescue operation in North American history. Uh, but they didn't find anything. And when they wrapped it up in uh, mid-February uh, in the accident reports that they said the plan was to come back when the weather was better. But they but they never did. And you describe this as perhaps the biggest unsolved mystery in Canadian history. I mean, that's that's quite a statement. Well, uh, well I've been involved in I've been involved in other stories over the year and years, including the search for the Franklin Expedition. Um, and once the Erebus and the terror were found, I would have, I would have said at the time that that's sort of the greatest unsolved mystery when you're talking about in terms of numbers that no one survived, 
and that we have we had no clue until the ships were found about exactly what happened. And I look on the SkyMaster the same way. Forty four people is a lot of people to be missing for 72 years. Um, there's a lot of plane crashes in Canada. As a matter of fact, there's a record of over 500 of them in the Yukon alone. Um, but the SkyMaster is one of only four that is still unaccounted for. So uh, through several metrics, that's why I say, in my opinion, it's the greatest unsolved mystery. Um, just sheer numbers of people. Andrew Gregg is a filmmaker, and uh, the new documentary is called Skymaster Down. It premieres on the documentary channel this coming Sunday, Jan 16th at 9 p.m. Eastern. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the film, you, you, uh, you investigate sort of the the search and the recovery and the mystery aspect of it, but you also focus in on those that are left behind. Are there still uh, family members out there, you know, waiting for news about what happened to their, their relatives? It's incredible how many there are. The, um, everybody's getting older, but there are still brothers and sisters of people that were on that plane. Mainly uh, the people that we talked to were mainly children or nieces and nephews. And, you know, those children are now well into their seventies, some into their eighties. So uh, one woman we talked to in particular is Judy Jackson. She lives in Alabama. Her mother was pregnant with her when the plane went missing, carrying her father, who was the radio operator on board. And she it's it's even though she never got to meet her father, she says, you know, people say to me, how can you miss something that you never had? And she said, I've missed my father all my life. It's sort of for all these families, there's a blank spot in family lore and it's it, it's unsettled. And because it's there, not only the families, but other people who've taken up interest in this story of, of you know, it's human nature to create to come up with theories in in absence of fact. And so these families have heard everything. They've heard everything. They've heard everything from it was, it was hijacked and taken to communist China um, or that it actually made it South, but then it was brought down by another plane and the bodies were hidden. There's a lot of this stuff out there. And, and that as it cycles around makes it very hard for the families Andrew, we've got to take a, a quick time out. Uh, sure. uh, hang tight. We'll come back. Andrew Gregg, filmmaker. The documentary is called Skymaster Down, and it premieres on the D- documentary channel this coming Sunday, Jan 16th at 9 p.m. Eastern. Back with more of our conversation in about three minutes. Don't go away. Let's get back at it on Newstalk Saga 960 AM. It's the Richard Serres Show. or biggest unsolved mysteries in Canadian history, perhaps. The disappearance of a U.S. military transport plane carrying 44 crew and passengers from Anchorage, Alaska to Montana disappears over the Yukon in January of 1950. And as uh, filmmaker Andrew Gregg says, not only vanished, I mean, not even a rivet has been found. Uh, So, Greg, Obviously, you know, we they didn't have the technology uh, that we have today, but were, were mistakes made in, in your estimation in the the recovery mission? Because I understand that they they were flying these large aircraft at fairly high altitude. Uh, they thought that was the best way to try and locate this plane. But where did they go wrong? I think that I don't know if it's necessary, if it's possible to criticize them from a 
perspective from 2022 about whether they went wrong or not. I, I think from what I understand, search and rescue technique just wasn't really that perfected at that point in 1950. And on top of it, as I said before, there's no radars, you know, it's all line of sight. Um, so what they did was they threw men and machines at it and mainly they were flying with other C-54s and DC-3s and, you know, the DC-3s had basically round porthole windows that were all fogged up. Um, there was no heat in the back and they've got a low set wing. So when you're looking out the window, the wing is blocking a large part of the ground on top of that in January, late January in the Yukon, you, you're, you don't have many hours of daylight. Um, and the distractions from this military exercise were also thrown in. So there, there was a lot of problems there. If there was a mistake looking back, it would be that they never consulted with the First Nations people um, in the Southwest Yukon who know that territory better than anybody else. And would have con- they would have conducted a search on foot. Um, they would have gone in and, and you know, used, used logic and their knowledge of the territory to to go and 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 search um they never did that in fact uh as the search was wrapping up a, a first nations hunter came in from the bush and said at around the time of the crash he had heard a massive noise and, and saw uh signs of a huge snow side with care with uh, scavenger birds hanging around in the trees the rcmp flew out in a small plane and circled it but never landed and never looked any harder than that so you know it 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 was an intensive search for three weeks and then it stopped and now, all these years later, there's still a small group in Whitehorse that are out there looking for it every year. Um, and more and more people seem to be aware of it. So bush pilots keep an eye open. Everybody's keeping an eye open for it, for anything, maybe a glint of aluminum, you know, something that could change the course of the story. An interesting sidebar. We, we were talking about the, um, the search and rescue mission and, and how there were a number of uh, planes that, that during the mission crashed. Uh, one of those was was carrying a a, um, a uh, an inactive nuclear bomb, I believe. Well, that that was that's two different stories. That wasn't a search ah. plane. That was the basically the reason the search was called off. That was a giant B thirty six bomber that was carrying a nuclear bomb on it, but with no plutonium. And it was a training run from Fairbanks down to Texas. So it had a crew of 16 on it. It took off from Fairbanks on Valentine's Day, February 14th. And this was at the, this was three weeks into the Skymaster search. So they're already starting to think we're not going to find it. But when that plane, that B-36 caught fire, uh, the crew jettisoned the bomb. And because there was no plutonium on it, they, they uh, blew it up with conventional explosives in midair. And then they bailed out. Curiously enough, that plane somehow turned around on its own over the ocean, flew back inland and now rests on top of a mountain in northern British Columbia. But that 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 plane was basically the reason all the reason the U.S. military needed to call off the search for the Skymaster because they had a missing nuke and um, the first ever uh, what they call a broken arrow. And so all the resources went into finding that plane. What about Canadian, Um, uh, the Canadian military? The Canadian military was was there kind of supporting the Americans Four search planes. All DC-3s crashed during the search. Uh, One Canadian one crashed on takeoff. um, But there are two other search planes that are still out there. We visit them in the film. Um, One, they're both up on mountains. And um, what had happened was that they were using big planes to search, but they told the pilots to fly low and slow, which these planes weren't built for. 
And in a couple of cases, they got too low and they didn't have the power to pull out before hitting the side of a mountain. Nobody was killed in any of those accidents, but they're harrowing stories all on their own. And, and to visit those accident sites is very creepy, I must say. I can imagine. Uh, Andrew, we'll take one final uh, timeout, come back and uh, discuss Skymaster Down, a documentary premiering on the Documentary Channel Sunday, Jan 16th at 9 p.m. Eastern. Andrew Gregg, filmmaker, stays with us. Back with more in a moment. You're listening to The Richard Serrett Show on Newstalk Saga, 960 AM. Two minutes remain with filmmaker Andrew Gregg. The documentary is Sky Master Down, premiering on the documentary channel this coming Sunday, Jan 16th, 9 p.m. Eastern. And the uh, the film investigates the disappearance of a Douglas C-54 Skymaster plane, a U.S. military tr- transport plane bound for Montana from Anchorage, Alaska, disappears over the Yukon carrying 44 crew members and passengers and disappeared without a trace. How could a four engine military military transport plane just vanish? Uh, so wh- what are the uh, wh- what are what are your best guesses, uh, Andrew, as to what I mean, could it have landed on a, a frozen lake and fallen through? Uh, what do you think might have happened? Well, there's basically three schools of thought. And I'll try to get through them as quickly as possible. Um, The lake theory is pretty common. Um, We actually went to the largest lake along the flight path and spent four days doing side scanning sonar along the bottom. Uh, There's been perennial um, lasting rumors of a big plane in that lake, but we didn't find anything. The problem with the theory of it hitting a lake is in January, the ice would already be very thick. The plane would have to be going screeching fast uh, to break through the ice. To do that, it would have made a lot of noise. And even though this is wilderness, there's a lot of people out there on trap lines um, and, and, and winter villages. Um, also, in the summer, once the ice has melted, uh, fuel slick would have formed on the surface of the lake and anything like a seat cushion would have floated up. So that's the problem with that one. The other theory is that it's still somewhere along the flight path, possibly in a ravine. But that area has been crisscrossed by everybody from miners to hunters to trappers to hikers to geologists for the last 72 years. It's been very well covered. Plus, there are bush planes flying in there all the time. There's uh, hunting outfitters. Like, it's it's for an area that's called, quote, unquote, wilderness, it's pretty busy. That leads us to the mountains. And um, I did find a radio operator that was based at Snag uh, when the plane went missing. He's still alive, living in Ottawa. He says that a lot of these crews, they were from the, the southern states. They thought they could take shortcuts and try to fly across the flight path as opposed to keeping on it all the way south. If you do that, in short in short order, you're into the St. Elias mountain range, which are the biggest mountains in Canada. Nine of the ten tallest mountains in North America are in there. And that's Kalani National Park for the audience that might not know St. Elias Range. I think what happened was they went in there and uh, triggered a snowfall. And I think they're encased in a glacier. Um, That makes sense to me because that's what happened to some other plane crashes in Alaska around the same time. And um, I have a feeling that if anything's going to reveal the plane, it's going to be climate change. The receding, uh, the receding receding ice glaciers, the receding glaciers. Yeah. are the, are the families hoping for another search? Are they mounting a petition or what's happening there? One of the th- amazing things about this story is um, how how many people don't know about it. I didn't know about it until 2018. And I like to think of myself as somebody that's up enough on, on, on aviation history, but also northern history. I used to live in the Yukon. 
Um, and so um, the, what the families are hoping for is closure. That's all they want. A lot of them are done writing letters and doing petitions. They've done it for years. Um, there are some groups on Facebook that have their own Facebook pages um, about this. That's trying to put pressure on the government to go back out and look again. There's a jurisdictional issue because it's in Canada. Well, it is an American plane. And then once you add bodies to it, that creates a whole other jurisdictional headache. Um, but all we want to do with this film on top of trying to help the families find closure is bring it back into the public consciousness. We want people to know about this story again, because it was a big deal in 1950 and then interest just dissipated. So what we're really hoping is this starts a cycle up again that could lead to the plane finally being found. And if it does cycle up again, hopefully, and there is uh, a new effort to locate it, will you be will you be covering that with the uh, camera in hand? It'll be hard for them to stop me. <laughs> uh, we're already looking at developing a part two, along with some of those other plane crashes that happened in the in Alaska around the same time. So, we're, yes, we're, we're keeping an eye on it. Um, and a lot of the as soon as you do a story like this, you become um, part of it. And um, um, so a lot I'm, all, I'm in touch with a lot of the families a lot of the time. Um, and, uh, they're very, I, I must say they've been very eager and, and, and thankful for, for the attention again. And the uh, film is called sky master down. It mm -hmm. premieres on the documentary channel on Sunday, Jan 16th yep. at 9 PM Eastern thereafter. Can we see it somewhere else as well? It's going to be rerunning on gem several times or on, 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 on the doc channel and then eventually on gem, but we haven't got that schedule yet. And, oh. and to the frustration of the families in the States, we haven't gotten a U.S. broadcaster yet, but we're working on it. All right. Well, uh, Andrew, Greg, congratulations. Uh, this is a, a very worthwhile project. And uh, thank you for bringing this to light. It's a it's a it's a fascinating chapter in our history. It's a tragedy, uh, certainly, but um, an incredible mystery. And I Thanks, hope we get to the bottom of it. Andrew, thank I really you. appreciate the time. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Andrew, Greg, again, Skymaster down. Documentary channel, Sunday, Jan 16th, 9 p.m. Eastern. When we come back, Tom Korski, managing editor of Black Locks Reporter, will be here to comment on Canada's health minister and his statements last week, uh, basically warning us that mandatory vaccines are on their way. It's inevitable. Is that true? We'll find out. Stay with us. Back to the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. All right, last week we told you about Canada's health minister, Jean-Yves Duclos. And he, uh, he was scaring us. He's telling us that the provinces and territories will likely discuss mandatory vaccine requirements in the coming weeks and months. In other words, it's just a matter of time. It's inevitable, in his opinion. Tom Korski joins us once again, managing editor of Black Locks Reporter with his thoughts. Tom, welcome back. How are you? I'm well. Thank you, Richard. When you first heard that, uh, those statements from the health minister, what, what, what went through your mind? Well, as you mentioned, uh, the minister says he, he thinks he's, he's Kreskin. He predicts that provinces will ask for compulsory vaccination, but none have and none will, Richard, because it's unconstitutional. Who says that? Well, the Minister of Health's own lawyers say that. He, he forgot to mention that part. Uh, th this is not a conspiracy talk. This is the Department of Health in a 1996 report. It's called the National Report on Immunization. Uh, 
1996, the Constitution hasn't changed. It said, I'm quoting, unlike some countries, immunization is not mandatory in Canada. It cannot be made mandatory because of the Canadian Constitution, quote unquote. The Minister of Health is an educated man, Richard, and he should read his own constitution and he should read his own department lawyer's report on the fact that compulsory vaccination is unlawful. Yet we have it in in certain sectors. Um, And we had a Supreme Court ruling, as you pointed out on this program, regarding what religious freedom, religious exemptions and religious freedom really means. Uh, And yet that doesn't seem to matter. Does it matter at this point if it's unconstitutional? It doesn't seem to matter to the government. It doesn't. It doesn't. I agree with you. And, And that's a sad place. Because, of course, this will be demonstrated as unconstitutional in court rulings. I don't think there's much question of that. And even proponents of compulsory vaccination admit there's an argument. But I agree. What is the real-time remedy? We've asked those questions. We've asked those questions, for instance, of the privacy commissioner. What is the remedy in real time? It's my job. It's my access to public services. It's my access to housing or employment. How does the Constitution help me now, or is it just a scrap of paper? So that when the government gets in a tough place, if it wants to deflect, if it doesn't want to talk about its own failures, if it doesn't want to talk about really, you know, constructive remedies where we can all get together to get through this pandemic. What if the cabinet wants to drag the chain? That's where we are right now, Richard. I agree with you. It's it's not a good place. Is it up to the provinces? Um I, I mean, I know that that, that uh, under the uh, the Constitution, health care is uh, administered by the provinces. But could the could the federals, uh, regardless of what the Constitution says, just impose their own federal mandatory vaccine? Sure, they could do it under a, a, a bill that was the successor to the War Measures Act. But now we're going to crazy town. <laughs> now, it's, now, now this is just lunatic. But if, if that's where the Minister of Health wants to go, be my guest, see what happens. If you want to have the Canadian military on the streets enforcing a compulsory vaccination, go ahead. You know, the, you're right, Richard. Local authorities get away with this in some jurisdictions. But the law is the law, and it's his own department said it's unlawful. You can't do that. It doesn't seem much argument with his own lawyers. If they if they were, I mean, you say that would be crazy town. Some might suggest we already took that exit um, a, a year or two ago. <laughs> yeah, point, point taken. <laughs> but if they were to invoke the War Measures Act, uh, what what um, would that suspend certain aspects of the charter? Uh, and if so, do, do we know which which would be affected, which articles of the it's charter? Very, it is. It's very interesting. It's called the Emergencies Act. It has never, never been invoked. We've spoken to the uh, man who wrote it, a man by the name of uh, Perrin Beatty, who's now uh, has been associated with the Chamber of Commerce. He wrote it uh, when he was Solicitor General way back in the Mulroney years. There's a catch. It says Parliament can really do whatever it wants to. It can seize any factory. It can seize production. It can really take control of the entire economy and the people who work in it. There's a problem. Number one, you must consult Parliament. That would never pass. And number two, we've seen in internal emails, they actually looked at this in the early innings of the pandemic. Even cabinet, even political aid said, this is, this is too much. We can't do it. Yet you have 
cabinet ministers time after time after time publicly musing about how unimmunized people are bad people and that we should really force them to take a medical procedure. It doesn't make any sense. No, little does. I mean, that would be that would be a red line that they would cross. We could never go back, uh, I would imagine. Right. I think the the effects of what they've already done are so far reaching in terms of extreme divisive measures. By the way, who called it extreme and divisive compulsory vaccination? The prime minister of Canada, Mm. January 2021, extreme and divisive. He said, you got it. All right, Tom. Uh, Well, (laughs) we'll sit on pins and needles for this one. Thank you so much, as always. Thank you, Richard. Tom Korski, managing editor of Black Locks Reporter. Please visit the website blacklocks.ca and subscribe. We have to get behind independent media in this country. It's so, so important. Blacklocks.ca. All right. Plenty of shows still to come, including a visit from Max Bernier, the Honorable Max Bernier from the People's Party. Much to discuss with him. Stay with us. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. The Richard Serrett Show continues on Newstalk Saga 960 AM. Welcome back. Hour two. Uh, We are awaiting the arrival of Max Bernier, leader of the People's Party. He was in old Montreal on the weekend on Saturday. He took part in an anti-curfew protest. And according to some reports, there were hundreds of people there. We'll get uh, we'll get the word from Max. Uh, how many were in attendance? Should we believe the figures bandied about by the mainstream media? Probably not. They tend to downplay these things, but it may have been in the hundreds because I think maybe, you know, the fact that the protest was timed to coincide with the beginning of the curfew, which is 10 p.m. there. That may have uh, intimidated some people, scared some people. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. And uh, we'll also talk to Max about the uh, National Post's a column that came out last week from Tara Henley, former radio and TV producer who quit the CBC in disgust because of, among other things, their obsession with race and racial quotas. I'm sure Max will have uh, lots to say about that. Defunding the CBC is uh, one of Max's pet projects. And I will also talk to Max 
about um, what we just discussed with Tom Korski from Black Locks Reporter, and that is the uh, the federal health minister telling us that mandated or vaccine mandates, mandatory vaccines rather, are coming. It's just a matter of time, in his opinion. Never mind that it's unconstitutional. That doesn't seem to matter anyway anymore. And I think we're going to revisit an earlier conversation we had with uh, Mark Bauerlein. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. A little later this hour, he's the author of The Dumbest Generation Grows Up. He's talking about the millennials. Sorry, millennials. The dumbest generation grows up from stupefied youth to dangerous adults. That's coming up a little bit later. I don't know if you can hear the uh, the puck against the boards here. Can you hear it, Jacob? The boys are out on the, uh, the backyard rink. It's cold. It's I think it's about, what, minus 12, minus 14, minus 18? Minus 18 was the um, was the projected low today. So we've reached minus 18 already. They were a little worried about the rink uh, because we had some warmer weather. On Sunday, I think it went up to about three, maybe four. And so they looked out there and uh, it looked more like a swimming pool. I said, don't worry. Don't worry. This is good. The top level melts. Everything evens out. And then if it's followed by a quick freeze, you get that nice sheet of glass. It's wonderful. So they're out there now. Do we have Max yet? We do. Wonderful. The Honorable Max Bernier, leader of the People's Party of Canada, joins us once again. Happy New Year, Max. Thank you. Happy New Year also. Yeah, this is absolutely the cutoff now. I'm not going to wish anyone a Happy New Year now. It's once you get past Jan 10th, I think that's it. I can't be saying happy. I can't be saying happy new year to people in July, but for you, I wish you a happy new year. Uh, I appreciate that. Uh, let's start uh, Saturday, old Montreal, this uh, anti-curfew protest. Um, how, what was the attendance like? Because I'm always a little cautious when the, the mainstream media, they tend to downplay these things. They say it was in the hundreds. What was your take? Uh, around 3000 and 4000 people, uh, that was a very nice Saturday afternoon, a little bit cold, minus 15. But, uh, you know, it was so important for me to be there. Uh, it was a, also a rally against the uh, curfew, but against also all the mandates, vaccine passport. And as you know, in Quebec, uh, an unvaccinated person 
won't be able to go to buy a bottle of wine uh, in uh, uh, eight days. Uh, in eight days, they won't be able to go there. And the Minister of Health said that he want to impose more. He wants to impose more measures to unvaccinated people. So that's a kind of a crackdown on unvaccinated people in Quebec. And uh, like Trudeau said also, as you know, a week, a couple of weeks ago, he said that unvaccinated people are racist. And Macron in France said he he wants to piss off the unvaccinated people over there. So I think they, they have an agenda. Uh, they want to be sure that life would be very difficult for unvaccinated people. And uh, but, you know, it's our freedom of choice. And we know actually right now that vaccinated people and unvaccinated people can have and spread the virus. So why doing that discrimination and segregation? It is not based on science. And that's why we had a lot of people over there in Montreal. And there's another big rally also in two weeks in Toronto. I'll be there. It's too important. We need to be there. We need to say to these establishment uh, despots, politicians, to stop that. Uh, what is your sense um, in, in, in Quebec? I mean, at what point are the people going to say, that's it, that's, we've had enough? I mean, is it the, you know, being denied getting a, a bottle of wine? at the, um, the the liquor store? What is what is the finally, the tipping point for the people of Quebec, do you think? Well, I, I think it would be when the, the third uh, does, doses will be uh, enforced because the, it would be enforced in a month. So if you don't have your three uh, doses of uh, that vaccine, your vaccine passport won't be valid anymore. So like I said, during the electoral campaign last September, I said, your vaccine passport will have an expiration date. And that's when they're going to ask you to take another shot, another booster shot. And now that's happening in Quebec in a month. And I believe a lot of people would be fed up with that. And they understand that it's you cannot fight a pandemic by violating uh, our rights and freedoms. Uh, we need to learn to live with that virus is there. And actually, it's a good news that a lot of people can have it because we'll have a real herd immunity that will come. And the new uh, variant of that virus is very mild. So we have the data about that. But answering your question, I believe that will be when that uh, vaccine passport won't be valid anymore if you have only two shots. I believe that more and more people will say enough is enough. When uh, the prime minister was on Quebec TV back in September during the campaign and asked rhetorically whether Canadians should continue to tolerate the unvaccinated, many people thought that crossed the line into criminality, Section 319 of the Criminal Code. He certainly was inciting Anger, hate, frustration, but hate towards an identifiable group, the unvaccinated. Yeah. Now, I, I spoke with some, a, a lawyer at the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedom. Unfortunately, as exhaustive the list of identifiable identifiable groups in Section 318, the unvaccinated are not listed there. So I suppose he gets off on a technicality. But do you think his comments constitute hate speech? Uh, they're very dangerous. And, and yes, because... You know, Justin Trudeau is the prime minister of this country. And now he's saying there's two classes of citizens, uh, the good one that are vaccinated and the bad one that are not vaccinated. 
and he's blaming us, me, myself, I'm not vaccinated, and, and threatening uh, us, the unvaccinated people. So, so what he's doing, it's very dangerous. Uh, we want to, what we want to do is to unite everybody. For us, there's only one citizen, one free and responsible citizen. And we want to unite all these citizens under the freedom umbrella. Yes, it's very scary what he's saying. And actually, the worst about all that is the the elite, uh, journalistic, are speaking about, you know, and very normal in Quebec, in a radio station in Montreal, on the, the La Presse newspaper and the Journal de Montréal. They're saying, you know, we must think to uh, not allow the unvaccinated person to be uh, uh, to go to the hospital, to, to be able to go to the hospital if they need to. Um, you know, just having that idea, to put that idea on the table, and other people are saying, you know, the, oh, maybe they will have the right to go to, hospital, to the hospital, but they will have to pay for it and other fees. We so, already pay for it. We already pay for it. Absolutely, we are already. So, so that narrative is very dangerous. And um, and I believe that more people will come uh, when when uh, when they will when their own rights will be violated, like us. You know, a lot of people decided to take two shots just to be able to uh, live in a in a society and do what they wanted to do. But now the third one, after that, the fifth one, the fourth one, it it won't end. So we need to protest, to do rallies, to speak to our MPs. And that's what I'm telling people. Write to your MPs, call him and tell him that, you know, you want all that to stop. There's no reason to be under emergency act in Canada right now. The federal health minister is is warning us that mandated vaccines, mandatory vaccines are inevitable and that the premiers, the provinces of the territories are going to be talking about this in the days, the weeks, the months to come. Uh, I just spoke with Tom Korski from Blacklocks Reporter. He's adamant this is unconstitutional, but that doesn't seem to matter anymore. Do you think the federal health minister is correct that the provinces will be talking about mandatory vaccines and that they are inevitable in this country? I don't think so. You know, we we have the only the only reason why they're, they're speaking about that is because of all the cases that we have all across the country. But we must look at the real data. The real data is the number of deaths. And, you know, it's stable. So you cannot impose more restrictions when you have a virus out there that is not dangerous for the huge majority of the population. We have the data now and we know it. We know that. So so people can take the, the vaccine if they want, but it won't stop the to it won't stop that that virus. It's on the only good good the news about that vaccine is if you have the COVID-19 and the new variant, it would be a mild, you'll have mild symptoms. That's the only good thing about the vaccine right now. Mike, my concern is, Max, though, that the data, as you point out, and it's we have it, we have mountains of evidence, as you say, that Omicron is uh, is mild. This could be the natural booster that we all need. The data doesn't seem to matter to uh, our public health officials. They have, seem to have painted themselves into a corner and they are doubling down, tripling down, quadrupling down. It doesn't seem to matter. So should we be 
fearful and and perhaps take the federal health minister at his word that they are going to they're going to take that final journey to crazy town and try to impose mandatory vaccines. I won't be surprised if they try to impose that. So if we want that to stop, we have the solution in our hands. We just need to wake up and, 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 and to protest and to be we cannot tolerate that. And I believe that Canadians are reasonable people, uh, you know, they, it won't. We don't need to have the majority to win, actually, right now, that debate. Uh, we are about 10 percent of uh, all Canadians that are not vaccinated. And, you know, that percentage will grow because vaccinated people will come on our side. They realize they they decided to have the two shots or the third shots just to live their life. And because that was imposed to them. And now I believe that more of them will react and we just need to increase that percentage. It's a battle of the changing the public opinion. And if these uh, Politicians are seeing a trend, uh, 10%, 15%, 20%. That will be the only way that they're going to stop that because they don't respect our constitution. And what they want, they want to be reelected. But, you know, fear was very efficient. And that's why they they are able to have a huge majority that is supporting what they're doing. All right, Max, we've got to take a quick time out. uh, We'll come back. We'll discuss this further. Also, one of your uh, favorite topics, defunding the CBC. We'll come back with uh, Max Bernier, leader of the People's Party of Canada. Stay with us. Continuing with the conversation, this is The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk, Saga 960 AM. Welcome back. Coming up in a few minutes, Professor of uh, English Emeritus, Mark Bauerlein, uh, will be here. It's a... uh, a previous conversation we had, we're going to replay it. And he's the author of The Dumbest Generation Grows Up from Stupefied Youth to Dangerous Adults, basically taking a, a poke at millennials. Right now, the Honorable Max Bernier stays with us from the People's Party. Uh, just uh, one more uh, note on on COVID before we move over to the CBC. And I just uh, I found it interesting or find it interesting now that after two years now, the uh, federal conservatives are starting to speak out about lockdowns and mandates and so forth. And uh, the leader, Aaron O'Toole, uh, where have they been for the last two years? They, they remind me of people who show up at the dance after the band has already packed up and left. Yeah, yeah but you cannot trust him. You cannot trust them. Actually, uh, Aaron O'Toole said last week that he's OK with a mandatory vaccine for the Canadian forces. Uh, so, you know, he's saying something a day and the opposite the other day. He's not doing politics based on conviction. And for him, uh, he's like Justin Trudeau. Uh, there's nothing new there. I believe that's why our party is growing step by step, you know, from 1.6 uh, at the first election for us in 2019 to 5% of the vote at the national election. And then we are around 10% right now. People understand that we are saying the same thing. And I was the only leader that was fighting on the ground during the campaign, before the campaign and after the campaign to fight for our freedoms. And I will always do that. Is that why they're speaking out now? Do you think they're panicking? They're seeing the the rise of the People's Party? I I believe so. They're saying that more and more people now are fed up with these uh, measures. And so uh, they they just try to please to, to speak to them and try to please them. But I, I believe like you just said in the beginning, it, it's a new position, but I believe that tomorrow, if the polls are different, it will, uh, it, it won't change, it won't do anything. 
you cannot be you cannot be against uh, mandates and saying at the same time that it's okay for the Canadian forces to um, be in a position to have the two shots and the three shots when the time will come. All right. I want to talk about the CBC. I'm guessing uh, these days you're a big Tara Henley fan. She wrote this piece in the National Post, former uh, TV radio producer at the CBC, blowing the whistle about we've known this. But to have someone who even describes herself as being left leaning, being fed up uh, with the the CBC's obsession with uh, race and racial quotas and and, uh, diversity, uh, likening it almost to a cult. Uh, your, your your thoughts on, on Tara Henley speaking out? Yeah, first of all, I was very surprised, uh, surprised that somebody like her um, had the courage to speak uh, out about the CBC. And she said, and she wrote, I just want to read that, to work at the CBC now is to accept the idea that race is the most significant things about a person and that some races are more relevant to the public. So, so that the CBC, it's a woke organization. They're racist. It's all about race. You know, it's not about. It's not the CBC that's supposed to be the national broadcaster for all Canadians, and uh, and that's why our position. It's always the same. We need to defund the CBC. We need to privatize the CBC. The federal government is giving more than $1 billion a year to the CBC. Let's save that money and giving that back to the taxpayers. That's our position. That has been always our position. But, you know, Aaron O'Toole said last week, uh, he tweeted last week, let's have a discussion about the CBC. We don't need to have a discussion about the CBC. We need to defund the CBC. That's it. Uh, and because that's a racist organization, a woke organization, and we don't need that organization anymore in our country. And if some Canadians uh, want to uh, have the CBC, it's okay. It can be like PBS. They will have to pay for that. I believe that they won't be able to be successful like that. But uh, no, the taxpayers don't have to give to give money to the CBC. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. Uh, Max, always appreciate your time. Thank you so much for this. Thank you so much. Have a nice day. Max Bernier, leader of the People's Party of Canada. All right, when we come back, English professor emeritus Mark Bauerlein takes aim at the millennials. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Richard Serra Show on News Talk, Saga 960 AM. Welcome back. 
The dumbest generation grows up from stupefied youth to dangerous minds. Back in 2008, Mark Bauerlein was a voice crying in the wilderness. Experts greeted the new generation of digital natives with extravagant hopes for their high-tech future. Bauerlein pegged them as the dumbest generation. Today, he says their future doesn't look so bright and their present is pretty grim. The 20-somethings who spent their childhoods staring into a screen are lonely and purposeless, unfulfilled at work and at home. Many of them are even suicidal. The dumbest generation grows up is an urgently needed update on the millennials explaining their not so quiet desperation and more important, the threat that their ignorance poses to the rest of us. Mark Bauerlein, welcome. How are you? Happy New Year. Uh, Happy New Year to you, sir. I'm glad to join you, uh, even though uh, we're we're stuck here in Virginia, blizzard, uh, a lot of a lot of outages here and there, some trees down and a lot of ice on the roads. In other words, winter. <laughs> exactly, exactly. We're not prepared for this uh, uh, down south. So, uh, True, that's true. Um, so in 2008, you wrote a book that, uh, that sort of defined this generation, the millennials. And, and I just read a little uh, uh, squib there from the publisher. But some people might say, wow, that seems pretty harsh, laying all of this on the, at the feet of a particular cohort. Uh, first of all, let's just be precise here. When we talk about millennials, what age groups are we talking about? Uh, you know, there it varies a little bit. Born in the mid '80s up until roughly 2000. You know, so they're they're the youngest ones are in their early 20s. The oldest ones are in their late 30s, even approaching 40. Uh, that's where we are. You know, typically, traditionally, generations are defined in 20 year increments, but it's getting shorter because things are moving so quickly, right? Things are so different. I mean, even even when I when I was teaching, you know, even students in 2000 seemed quite different from students in 2010. So we, we, we've shortened up the, the, the difference, maybe, maybe to, to 18, 17 years at, at this point for the next generation Z, as they're called. Right. So to call them the, the dumbest generation, you say, you know, they spent their childhood in front of screens and we're familiar with that and that's ongoing. Uh, so when we talk about their purpose, purposelessness and their hopelessness and uh, their ignorance, uh, titanic ignorance in, in many respects in some areas. Uh, is that their fault? You know, most of this book blames the mentors because what, what do we do, Richard? We, we let them sink into their little screens. We gave them the iPhones. We put them all on Facebook. Twitter started in 2008 and they started moving uh, into this whole youth world 24-7. They could go into their bedrooms, shut the door, and open up to the rest of the world, which is to say their friends. They had the phone, the laptop, the, the iPad, the iPod. Uh, they still had the TV going. And it was really a wonderful space for them because they didn't have to go into the complexities of history, politics. We didn't give them very much religion. Uh, We didn't give them good movies. We didn't give them intelligent conversation on TV and radio. They could live in youth world all the time. They could sleep with the phone one foot from their pillow so that if a picture came through at one in the morning, they, they could check it out. They could walk around with 250 photos of themselves in their pockets. And what what this did was during those crucial formative years, when the intellectual worldview is beginning 
to take shape when they really need exposure to uh, 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 the story of Odysseus and the great love stories of, of passion and, and betrayal. They need to read a little bit of Dostoevsky. They need to know about the, the, great, the great voyages, the tragedies that happened that give them a sense of life, a sense of the scope of the past to expand outside the adolescent framework and they didn't do it. And now they're 30 years old and they, they, they meet the ordinary trials of adulthood. I mean, they've gotten a raw deal in some economic ways and, and heavy college loans, things like that. But they, they don't have the equipment to cope with the problems that happen. So they're not getting married and having kids. The rates of depression and anxiety and narcissism are significantly up, including suicide, job dissatisfaction. They, they don't like where they work. And on the attitude levels, the millennials were praised as the most tolerant, open minded, progressive generation in human history back in 2008. When they ask now about them, they rate significantly higher than older generations on social mistrust, as it's called. They don't trust other people. They also are highly vindictive. They are more likely to take revenge on someone for something than older generations. And this is why the millennials are the main bearers of cancel culture. They'll sign a petition, 2,000 others, to get one person fired for telling an, an, an idiotic joke. And they're into that. It, it's where that is where a lot of the meaning for them now comes from it's a very righteous moral vision of political correctness and they are willing to act upon it it's it's kind of a uh, an unforgiving outlook that they have about right. the world and about other people it's uh, yeah it's mccarthyism um of, of a new uh, different stripe i suppose or oh, it's the same it's the same thing but it's coming from the other side, I guess. We'll, uh, we'll pick this up on the other side. Mark Bauerlein, author of The Dumbest Generation Grows Up, From Stupefied Youth to Dangerous Adults. Stay with us. The Bull Session continues on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. Welcome back. Mark Bauerlein stays with us, professor emeritus of English at Emory University and editor at First Things, where he hosts a podcast twice a week and the author of five books, including The Dumbest Generation, How the Digital Age Stupefies Young Americans and Jeopardizes Our Future, or Don't Trust Anyone Under 30. Uh, that's the 2008 book that, that uh, defined the generation of the millennials and, of, uh, of course, the, uh, the follow-up, uh, The Dumbest Generation grows up so is this the face of groups like antifa black lives matter uh, i don't know the occupy wall street protesters of a few years ago are these the same people i i actually tie their involvement with those groups to what they didn't get when they were teenagers because the thing about black lives matter and antifa it's a cause it's a movement I believe they are distorted, perverse ones, but it, but it is a movement. It lets them enlist themselves in something bigger than who they are. It gives their life purpose. They can enjoy uh, a certain righteous indignation that 
makes their lives participate in a meaningful course of history. And we know from all the utopian movements going all the way back to the French Revolution, how tempting it is when you feel like you can attach your individual existence to a great tide of history with a capital H. And that is where they're finding it these days because they're not really religious. Uh, the phenomenon of the nuns, as they're called, is growing in the United States. And even those who are religious, their religion is a very private, personal thing. They don't go to church. They don't attach it to an institution. They don't feel very much patriotism. Uh, they're not attached to their country. You don't see that kind of love that you see in the World War II generation. For instance, so they can't devote themselves to love of country. They're, as I said, they're not settling down. They're not forming families because that gives you purpose. I'm going to take care of my kids. I'm going to provide a future for them. I can sacrifice myself for those little lives there uh, upstairs. They don't have that. And, and by the way, they're not they're not going to get married uh, in in nearly the relate the rates that previous generations did. By age 40, I quote one study by the Urban Institute in the book. You know, we've had we've had a declining birth rate, steadily declining with the millennials. It kind of goes off the cliff. It's really dropping. And so that that familial purpose isn't there. Well, people want that. I mean, they want to they want to love their country. They want to feel good about where they are and where they're going. That's what these political causes do for them. And they don't have the historical, political, moral awareness to say, you know, there's something a little twisted about these these organizations. There's something off about them. And if I read a little George Orwell or more Dostoevsky or read a little about a, a history about, say, the, the Cultural Revolution in Mao's China or the way in which children were, adolescents were great leaders, were very important figures in the Cambodian Revolution as well and what the cost of that, of that was. Um, and, and the dangers of virtuousness we saw in the French Revolution Right. I mean, uh, Robespierre felt like he was the the incorruptible figure. He had no moral doubts about himself. That's that's where a lot of the millennials are now. Uh, this is the, the, the cohort. I almost shudder to think this, but perhaps this explains, uh, you know, when Dr. Robert Malone talks about a mass psychosis formation and the reaction to covid. Uh, is that because the millennials are, are by and large in charge? They are more and more stepping in. They're changing workplaces. They're changing workplace norms. And they have older coworkers intimidated. I mean, I, I'm on a college campus. I was there for 30 years. My colleagues are mostly more or less moderate, genial, liberal people. The, the hard leftists are, were a minority, but most of them are moderate liberals. They never vote Republican in the United States, but they're scared of the undergraduates, because if you're teaching a class of 30 
and two students file a complaint of bias saying that you did some trigger microaggressions them on the basis of their identity. Well, you've got to answer to them. Even the 28 who didn't complain, well, they don't count. It only takes a couple to change the whole climate within the workplace, within the institutions, everyone starts getting scared. So my colleagues have to be careful now about assigning books that they used to sign. Huck Finn, they assigned for that for decades. You don't assign that book anymore. It's got the N-word in it. They've got to be careful about pronouns in a way that they didn't before because this is the climate. It's almost like the new cultural revolution uh, from from Maoist China. Well, uh, Mark, just hold on. We'll take another uh, time out. We've got a, a few more minutes uh, remaining with Mark Bauerlein as we talk about the dumbest generation. Back with more in a moment. Just having a little chin wag on the Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. A few minutes remain with Mark Bauerlein. The author of The Dumbest Generation Grows Up, From Stupefied Youth to Dangerous Adults. He is a professor emeritus of English. And uh, we were talking uh, earlier about the, um, or I was anyway, making maybe a a parallel between what's happening now with millennials and, uh, you know, these little star chamber tribunals that they run and the cancel culture and the vindictiveness and spying on their, you know, their... uh, uh, their older uh, colleagues and so forth. And it reminded me or reminiscent of uh, China's uh, cultural revolution from 1970, 67 to I think about 76. Um, is that, uh, is that an apt parallel? Or? I think if you just dial down the punishments a little bit, the same motivations are there. Uh, we're, we're not throwing anyone into jail, but we're getting them fired from their jobs. We're, we're smearing them on social media, making their lives hell so that they receive emails and, and uh, phone calls and text messages and and everything else telling them how awful they are. It's a kind of moral shunning through the, the new technologies and putting pressure on people's livelihoods. You know, the doxing phenomenon really is about making someone's life miserable making them pay. And the the, the amazing things about it, they are shameless about this. They don't feel ashamed of what they're doing. They're doing exactly the right thing. They are, this is actually a virtuous behavior. That's what they've been, that's what they've absorbed. They think this is their epic mission. The epic mission that they used to get from video games. uh, They've now... (laughs) (laughs) But obviously, and it is, I mean, it is ratcheting up. It may, it may start off with, you know, making sure people lose their jobs, but now they've given th- themselves permission to, uh, to punch Nazis, and then they start labeling everybody Nazis. Uh, and so this is, you know, it's ramping up, certainly. But um, not every millennial, obviously, turned out this way. Uh, I talk a lot about homeschooling on this program. Those, that, those millennials that escaped this rather grim present um, are they by and large homeschooled or how did they escape? It's interesting. When I was traveling around college campuses, I was giving 20 or 30 lectures a year on campuses for a few years there. And I would meet a lot of students and I would ask to have lunch with a lot of students. Richard, I got so I think I could have picked out the homeschooled kids sitting around the table. They were different in a few ways. One, they were more comfortable talking to someone 30 years older than them. One thing about 
the the homeschoolers is they get enough adult contact, adult pressure to counteract the peer pressure that they get so that they're not so horizontal, right? In, in terms of age relationship, they can actually have a conversation. They can look you in the eye more often. They're more experienced. I also found that they were a little more reflective. They would pause. They didn't have stock responses to things. The accusation about homeschooling, you know, back in the 80s and 90s in the United States was, well, these are just weird fundamentalist Christian parents turning their kids into little you know, religious robots. Uh, but I found they actually have more individuality than do the kids who are supposedly been socialized more and get out more and, and are able to, you know, come there, find themselves through more more social outlets, more peer-to-peer contact. It has the opposite effect. That was my immediate experience. And you know uh, that in the aughts, Ivy League schools started, the admissions offices started to like homeschool kids, and it was entirely based upon evidence. The homeschooled kids would come into college and have fewer academic problems and fewer emotional problems. They would end up less often on academic probation and less often in the psychological counseling services. They were more adjusted. So schools sort of said, you know, we kind of like the homeschool kids because they cost us less money. They cost us less labor. It was a totally self-interested decision by them, but I'll I'll take their word for it. We just have a a couple of minutes here. Uh, I mean, I I see this as we're in the midst of a a non-shooting cultural war. Uh, And let's hope it stays that way. But how do we um, how do we prevail uh, because is it about attrition? Because if they're not going to have kids and generally religious conservatives tend to have a lot of kids, is that how we ultimately win through attrition? I think that the bitterness, the dissatisfaction, the vindictiveness is a sign of weakness. It's an opening for people like us who, when you encounter these young people, if you if you have a meaningful relationship to them, you can get into their lives and try to expose them to better gods than the false gods of social justice and political correctness. The better gods may be religious. The better gods, some tradition. The better God may be the great legacy of heroes, you know, military heroes in Canada who fought in World War One and World War Two. How about holding them up as role models a little more? Uh, give them positive backgrounds positive purposes, positive meanings, try to show them, you know, forming a family is not a burden. Yes, it's a burden to raise kids, but it gives you back so much more. This is where you're going to find happiness, not in getting out and marching in the streets about, you know, who knows what injustice you, you, you've invented. They're thirsty for it. They want purpose and meaning and we can step in there and give it to them. We just got to get the access 
We got to break into their lives. I, th- I think you're a better person than I am. I was more tempted to reach for a sock filled with horse manure. <laughs> you're, you're right, though. You have the your tag is, the, is precisely the correct one. Thank you so much, Mark. And how do we get a copy of The Dumbest Generation Grows Up? Well, uh, you, you know, I don't, I don't have a special website for it, but, you know, you, you can go to Amazon or, or Simon and Schuster, who, who does the, the distribution for Regnery. For the book, type in my name, Bauerline. It's uncommon, B-A-U-E-R-L-E-I-N. You can find my podcast and my writings in, in, in different places, and that'll lead you right to the book. Mark, I enjoyed this. I hope we can do it again. Thank you, sir. Mark Bauerline. That's for me. I think that's enough. My thanks to Jody, Jacob, and Brandon. I'll be back tomorrow, God willing, to do it all over again. The Brian Crombie Hour is next. In the meantime, be well, find joy, hold fast, be kind, but push back. I'll speak with you tomorrow at 4. Don't be late. Until then, I remain unbowed, unbent, unbroken. That's it. That's all. For more Richard Serrett Show, podcasts, blogs, and other stuff, go to saga960am.ca. Stop talking past each other and start talking with each other. We'll see you Tuesday afternoon at 4 on The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk, Saga 960am. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy.